welcome to this podcast. I'm Laura Horton. And I'm Michael Bentley. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, everybody. Uh, So here we are, July's Horton Hangout podcast. We've got three interesting and different questions to answer today. But firstly, I have an apology to make to everybody. (laughs) I really do, because if you listen to the June podcast, you'll know what that apology is. And I am so, so sorry about the bad weather because I did, yeah. didn't I? I said, it's the 1st of June. The weather's amazing. June's my favourite month. And then it rained for two weeks. And I'm really sorry, everybody. <laughs> On the flip side, July's not started that badly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I couldn't believe it. It's just so typical, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, never mind. So sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> it's only my fault, of course. Uh, now. We're coming up to holiday season, holiday time of year, which is going to be interesting. It's going to be good. I'm sure it will prompt questions because practices are either very quiet or they're very chaotic. So any concerns you have uh, about the holiday period, do let us know and uh, we'll be able to answer your questions in next month's Hangout. So for this month, we have got questions. The first one's about end of day, start of day checklists. We've got one about staff sickness, which is always a popular topic and a treatment coordination question as well um, in regards to getting everybody on board. So we'll start with the first question, which is we have implemented start of day and end of day checklists in our practice for the front desk, for decontamination, for the treatment rooms. They are being ignored. I am the practice owner and I'm the one going round at the end of the day, still having to turn things off. I'm losing the will to live. Please, can you help me? Why is no one listening to me? I have communicated the systems, but it's just not working. Okay, so that's really frustrating. And actually, it's something we see quite a lot, don't we, Mike? It is the owner going round at the end of the day, turning Mm. switches off. Um, and doing things and it gets really frustrating I mean I don't know about you Mike but I think for me the biggest problem with these checklists is that actually who are they for so sometimes what we experience is they can be quite generalized checklists and it's not really clear who is responsible for completing the tasks on the checklist so you might have particularly in the reception area this is quite a problem that you've got a start of day and end of day you know you have got them but in reception area because it's not clear who and everyone's thinking well everyone else is will do it and everyone's busy um that's that's usually why it fails but in nursing it's different but again it gets more complicated when you've got different areas that need shutting down and when you've got nurses rotating as well Mm. what are your thoughts Mike yeah I mean my thoughts are is you've got to talk to the teams that are doing the checklist and actually start to talk it through with them about can they achieve the checklist and where they're working are they able to complete the checklist in the time that they're actually employed for as well so it's all well and good having a very detailed checklist which again I see in many practices but you know a patient's late out of surgery 
and um, there's all the work to do with that particular patient and then that person's thinking well I've got to go and pick my child up I've got somewhere to go it's 5 15 I've completed my hours and there's a full checklist of things to do or the other way and I know that we've experienced this as well especially on the desk people are doing the checklist at like half past two in the afternoon yeah so they're starting it really early um, even to the point of doing the cashing up at three o'clock um, <clears throat> just so that it's done yeah that's not right either so the, the checklist has to be achievable and the contracted hours need to include how long it takes to do that checklist so my top tip for managers is and for owners is you have to time how long it takes to do all the jobs on the checklist then you have to factor that time into the end of day now there are various opportunities for getting it right here because as you say some areas need shutting down don't they so many practices now have got decontamination rooms they've got lab rooms you know there's uh, an opg room treatment coordination room different things to actually close down so you've either got everybody needs to be contracted the same hours and then if somebody has got a heavier list maybe the person with the easier list that knows they're going to finish first let's say you've got a group of examinations towards the end of the day and somebody is doing a lot of treatment although we could veer into you know diary zoning which we won't do quite now but if that's the case that is actually happening and somebody is going to be running late then it needs to be the other nurses that start to deal with the checklist for the other rooms and to actually help the person that's running late with their checklist. I, th I don't think that's an unfair situation to do. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, the other thing that some practices are doing is actually some nurses are quite happy to come in early. Some nurses are quite happy to come in, you know, to stay later because the commitment level is, you know, different on either side of, of, of the operating day. And therefore, you know, in some practices that are, we have worked with and I've worked with, somebody is nominated to come in earlier. They get paid for it. So let's say you start at eight o'clock. A nurse comes in at quarter past seven. They have to have a working alone agreement in place place to be able to do this I just want to add from an HR point of view they come in and they do the setups for all of the surgeries and for the decontamination room and things like that so the nurses then can be you know the other nurses can be contracted at eight yeah come in get the uniforms on and everything's ready to go at eight o'clock so there are various ways of dealing with it the first and foremost you've got to go what's on the checklist is it feasible how long does it take to do that um, so that it's consistent? And the areas that go wrong a lot are probably stock is a major issue mm. and cashing up is a major issue because if the cashing up goes well, then, you know, it's like, well, that's great because we can get out of time. But if there's a problem with the cashing up, which invariably there, there are in practices, for whatever reason, and, you know, errors generating the day or somebody hasn't been processed or account isn't right, it might take 10 to 15 minutes to solve that issue. And again, with stock as well, you know, if a nurse hasn't been stocking through the day, and this isn't, you know, systems like, what are you doing through the day? And you've left everything to the last minute at the end of the day, then, and you've got to do a full restock for the next day, then that is going to make you late, isn't it? So... It is about really confirming what does the slot level need to be at the end of the day, yeah? And 
I always say to nurses, you know, teamwork's really, really important and you can always do pledges with each other, which I think is really key. And, you know, if you do have 20, 30 minutes available, I don't know about you, Laura, but when I worked in surgery, if I knew I was running low on things, I used to start writing on the day list what I needed to get. Um, you know, I need another bag of alginate, I need some micro brushes, I need, you know, to get some uh, local down, whatever it may be, um, I need some burrs, whatever it may be. And then if a nurse came into me and said, oh, is, you know, is there anything I can do for you? You know, not with a lot of interruption of the patient, I would point to my day list and go, I could do with, get, uh, could you get these for me? And that's a job done then, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, but well, we won't go into stock because, oh gosh, if we had to ask for stock in one practice that I worked in, Mike, we were in trouble. The door was locked. It was a once a week occurrence. Mm. <laughs> but teamwork makes the dream work. I love that saying. And it's so true. Yeah. You've got to help each other out. It's mm. so important. And I think one thing just to add really in around the subject of time here is what we're experiencing more and more over the last year or so is the hours of the business aren't right for practices and so many practices are having this half an hour um situation in the mornings and it's happened a number of times to practices this just this year even that we've been to i mean it's great because there's really good things you can do with that time but what tends to be happening and we're experiencing and it's great okay because the practices are paying the team to come in early, to set up, to be ready, they're paying them for that. So that's really yes. positive, but mm. they're paying them for half an hour in the mornings and they're only allowing 15 minutes afterwards, or maybe they are allowing half an hour afterwards. So that's what you've got to look at here. What is the actual situation? So for me, 15 minutes prior to the first patient is absolutely fine you don't need any more than time than that unless you're doing a morning meeting so if you're going to do a morning meeting then yes 8 30 for example that's when the morning meeting starts you should be finished by 9 45 if it's going on longer than that then that's another topic to address um, and then at 9 45 the doors can open and everyone can begin to set up ready for showtime ready for when those patients arrive the bit i would add here laura that's really important is the decontamination room setups and testing yeah and this is where the nurses do start to uh Argue is probably the one word, but some people take that as responsibility and others are quite happy to let others do that. Mm. And that, you know, it's fine to do 15 minutes for a setup of your own surgery for the day. And that, you know, there's a lots of elements to that, you know, lab work and stock and, you know, and checking things through and, you know, and, and all of your things and just making sure that everything is where it needs to be. But the decon room is another thing and it can take 15 minutes to set up a decon room, especially if you've got lots of, you know, dentists working and there's, there's ultrasonic baths to do and there's autoclaves to refill and there's testing to do and they've all got to be put through and the logbooks need filling out. That's a job of its own. Yeah, so, so that should be got a decon nurse um, to actually facilitate the 15 minutes to set that room up. Yeah. Then you have got to work it out with the other nurses of who's going to do that job. Yeah, that's right. It can't be the same person every day. And it certainly can't be the same person that ends up doing the back end of it as well, which is empty. <laughs> You know what I mean? Because it tends to get left to the same people. And that's why nurses, because, you know, um, nurses are normally quite chilled, very loyal, you know, um, don't let things get them down. It's a, it's a gradual build of stress and then they blow because it's be like, well, this is the 40th time I've done this on my own and now I've had enough. 
exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's got to be fair. And I think, you know, if, when you're doing logs, people need to sign them. And that will give you an indication then of who's doing what work. And if you can see that it's more front loaded on, you know, two or three people in the practice or one person in the practice, then you need to address that as a manager, don't you? Yeah. Make it fair. Yeah, absolutely. And that's right. You know, it's got to be clear who's setting up each area and that's where it goes back to that accountability of who's doing what not everyone trying to do the same system as well because we've seen that you know you can't get in the decom room in the morning when we're observing in a practice why, why are so many people in there because it's such a rush job it's so stressful trying to get everything ready so it's about who's doing it when they're doing it how much time they actually need to do it and that the hours around the practice are right as well so um yeah some good points there from michael let's move on staff sickness oh my gosh just really gets everyone down doesn't it staff sickness and i think particularly at um the summer times and the times of year as well now this practice um they've got um three team members that they're, they're starting to get frustrated with that's the words they've used here uh with days off um, they want to discipline them can we do that how do we go about it um, so it's quite a short question, this one. So I think what we need to really clarify are a few stages that are really important before you go down that route and the companies that you need to be talking to to support you with staff sickness. So first and foremost, it's about having that sickness policy of when do people call what number do they call and it should be a phone call it's not about send me a text message on sunday night for monday and all this stuff mm. you've got to get away from that and i know we've discussed that element in quite a lot of detail in previous podcasts so you can go back to it what tends to happen with these sickness policies when they go wrong is because let's say the phone number to ring it goes through to me and then someone knows I'm on holiday, I'm on a course, I've got a day off. That's when they'll ignore the system. And what they'll say when they come back is, well, I thought because you were on a course that day, I just better text everybody else instead. No, the system's a system. So do make sure whatever phone number it is, you know, it's a, it's a practice mobile number that if you are the person who's not in, you're on holiday, a course, etc., that you're diverting it. To the owner or the next person the lead who's going to deal with any potential sickness calls that morning because that's where i see things going wrong with the team going well i thought because da, 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 and they've then created their own version of the system which is wrong they're not allowed to do that but just make that so clear and then the two other things that are missing a lot in practices which stop you taking disciplinary action are back to work interviews and a really clear sickness protocol and policy and it has to be really clear when you're going to action disciplinary so in regards to the back to work interviews they have to happen and i say this so many times i'm sure you do as well michael yeah I do. someone walks back into the practice not in the afternoon not the day after the moment they come back into the practice you've got to check they're fit for work again we've discussed this in detail you can go back to um, previous podcasts I definitely uh, again Michael what we see a lot is the the contractual element of when you're going to take disciplinary action that's missing a lot isn't it yes it is and um, to sum it up you know I know why you call it six policy because it's what everybody knows it as but just for the actual wording for everybody your policy has to be absence 
Yeah, it's an absence policy because it's about why you haven't attended work. And sometimes that is to do with sickness, but sometimes it's to do with another area, which is a big one, which is, you know, my child isn't well enough to go to school. So that's generated an absence for that person. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> or there's another reason for the absence because you're caring for somebody. Do you know what I mean? You're a lead carer for somebody. And that might prompt, you know, an absence because, you know, something has come up. So it's got to be an absence policy. Everything else that you've said, you know, is absolutely spot on. That You know, that's that's got to be there. And you're right, you know, it's got to be reported immediately. And to confirm that from a welfare point of view, that person is able and is fit to do another part of HR, which is the capability systems that they're in expected to do. And that's really important because if somebody's coming back into work and they've come back too early and their mind's not in the game, then are they going to start making mistakes in key areas of expected work? And if that is the case, then that person shouldn't be in the business. They've come back too early. And also the welfare is also about making sure that they might want to return back to the business, but they might need a phased back process. Yeah, it's not going to be, you know, if you've been away for a couple of weeks, let's say battling flu, for an example, which is, you know, can be, you know, pretty serious. I mean, I had um, uh, a blood infection this year, do you remember, Laura? And, you know, and it wiped me off my feet for a week. I had IV uh, antibiotics. And actually to expect your body to suddenly come back and do five days of eight hours is actually um, not a good idea. You know what I mean? So you've got to decide whether somebody does need a phased, you know, back to work experience and also where are they going to be in the business? And that will depend on how big your team is and whether it's like, well, you could do this role today or you're able to do this today. So some people might not go straight into frontline care immediately if they've been, you know, really poorly or they've got you know, a major situation going on that might be having effect on their mental health, which is a massive area too. Um, because this is where absences are generated now, aren't they? It's really important that you're very holistic with your response uh, to team members um, and you get that right. Back to your case in point with the contract is yes, you've got to have a threshold in your contracts for when disciplinary action may be taken. And that's the thing. And for most practices, they put in about, you know, a, a week, seven to 10 days, something like that in a rolling, you know, year period. And, but let me, I want to reassure you with something, two things. One is, is if somebody has a genuine illness away from the practice or they have got mental health you know, uh, issues which are confirmed by doctors and they're having support, medications, anything like that. They've got epilepsy, they've got diabetes, they've got, you know, cancer, you know, all of the areas where you think, well, that would be an unfair scenario, then of course it, you are going to be going down the disciplinary route. The only reason why you'll be going down the disciplinary route will be mismanagement of regular absences that are being created which is but we're going back to the duvet days aren't we yeah. you know the days off after bank holidays the days off after you know um having a holiday are quite popular you know the what i mean the repeated mondays repeated absences you're looking for patterns that are, of absence or 
you know, somebody's uh, child is consistently developing a pattern of those one day illnesses. And then you do have an opportunity to say, this is effect on the team and we cannot plan for these absences in practice. And therefore, you do need to start to source different solutions because when if your child needs another day of school, then it needs to be maybe your husband or partner that takes an active role or has the sickness day. Mm. Yeah, has the absence from their work because otherwise you may be, you know, going down the disciplinary route for, you know, a pattern of several absences created by this one thing. And I just want to mop up one other thing, which I think is important as well is, is if you are called at work and, you know, let's say, you know, we're working now and something happens to your eye law and we've got to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then that is a different type of absence. Yeah, it's an emergency absence. You didn't see it coming. I didn't know it was coming. You didn't know it was coming. And that's not dealt with under regular absence. Yeah. So you can't be disciplined for that. Yeah, because that was something unexpected. So if you're the main carer for your mum, dad, whatever it may be, and you've got to go because something has happened, then you've got to go. That, yeah. that, that is the way that it is. And the same with, you know, a child as well. You are, that's covered by a different section of absence management. Yeah. And sometimes people get those two mixed up um, and they start to move down the absence route and that is incorrect. Mm. And then just to finalise this area before we move on to the final question, you do need uh, an HR company to support you. You do need to get their advice. Oh, yes. And you must, 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 must before you do anything. It doesn't matter even what they've said. You must call your employer's liability because they will give you the final yes or no of what you can do. And yeah. that is essential. So it is essential. Because remember, a lot of, you know, the, the tribunal system has gone back to the old format, which is basically the employee can go to a tribunal for, and they don't have to pay any fees. So, you know, a few years ago, the tribunals went down dramatically because there was, you know, people had to pay to start to use that service. And now that's gone. So people are going back to that. And I want to point out one more thing before we move to the next question. The days of team members not knowing HR protocols are gone. They can listen to a conversation that's happened in practice and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they go home and they start researching on Google. So if you've got something wrong or you've not prepared yourself correctly, you could be faced with a barrage the day after. Yeah, and don't forget they've got ACAS they can ring as well. And ACAS will tell them exactly what's what. Yeah, so the days of blagging it, I want to say, are gone. Don't lag HR. Please, please don't. If that's the only thing you take away from this podcast, if you're blagging HR, you're making a mistake. Well, the next and final question is about treatment coordination, and that's most definitely, oh. something, which most definitely something you can't blag. No. Um, and um, <laughs> this is a really interesting uh, question, actually, and I wouldn't have thought we've answered a question on treatment coordination from this angle before. So... This is from a practice manager. The owner wants to implement treatment coordination. They have already internally recruited two people for the role. Brilliant. But 
the rest of the clinical team, the dentists are not on board and they don't want this role. Mm. Where should they start? What, where, what should they do? And I think there's some really good positives here. They've recruited the role. The owner wants it. You know, that's really positive. And they want to implement it into the practice. Brilliant, because it's going to support everybody. One of the things that's happening here is we've got change. We've got a change that's about to happen, which can be quite a big change in a business, in a dental practice. And naturally, people don't like change. So that's one thing, first and foremost. The other thing is, it's the fear of the unknown. So if you haven't really designed the systems that you want to implement, if you haven't really looked into the way treatment coordination can support your business, and we've got a fantastic vision plan. Uh, if you'd like a copy, let us know. Uh, we've got a fantastic vision plan for the role, which breaks down all the different ways you can use the role. So if you're just saying to associate dentists, oh, we're going to use treatment coordination, but you haven't got any further details for them, any further information on how, when, what, we haven't designed the systems, we don't know, it's just a lovely idea, they're not going to get on board with it and it's going to fall flat on their face. And I think the other thing I'll add to the mix as well is treatment coordination you start with one dentist or two dentists for the first month and then you slowly move it out to other dentists once you've decided of course which areas you're going to implement and it really is about getting everyone on board so this practice are right they want the team on board that's brilliant treatment coordination I think that one of the worst mistakes people try and make with it is that it's just about the TCO because it's not, it's about absolutely linking every single role together. The front of the house, the dentist, the hygienist, the practice manager. It's, it's a full team approach and I liken it to a wheel. The TCO is, is, is the middle and everyone else is the spokes that help that wheel go round. They're the one communicating to everyone, making sure everything's great and fantastic and you've got great systems. But I think, I don't know about you, Michael, but I think it sounds really positive. They just need to get everybody on board before they can start moving forward. Don't go gung-ho now when people aren't on board. It's only going to fall. It's only going to fall flat, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you say, it is a massive change for practices. And my advice would be that you don't need, what you need to do is, as what you said, is, you know, explain the role to everybody so they know what's going on that is number one that that's just sharing the vision plan isn't it but then after that you've got an opportunity then to say we're going to trial it pioneer it with one dentist yeah that you know wants to see how it's going so that actually it can be brought in gently yeah so that the other dentists can see the results and the role becoming you know a major part of the practice and seeing the benefits of the role and I think that's really important too and I remember in my practice that when I first did treatment coordination which is probably I don't know 12 years ago something like that now um not all my dentists were on board and but we built the treatment coordination room. Everybody knew it was happening. There was a full vision plan for it. And I just worked alongside the dentists that wanted to, you know, use it immediately. And we found our way with it. And one of the things that was really good was, is that 
because it was a new role and you're just, you know, finding your feet, some things, as you know, Laura, will go wrong, won't they? You know, or communications that you have don't go the way that you thought they were going to. And it's a buildup of confidence from all sides to get it right. But when somebody wants to do something, and I alert to Martine, who was like, you know, we were like, we want this, we want it to work and everything like that that you know we spent all that time working together so when we at the you know occasion we did hit a bump in the road <clears throat> we were both wanting to sort it out together mm. because we both wanted it to work so lo and behold a little bit later joe who's the other extreme fabulous guy was like no you're taking the communication away from me and you know things like that um once he sort of started working he was sort of curious and I said, well, you know, should we start doing a little bit for some of your patients? Why don't we do some options meetings for a few patients? And he was saying, oh, this patient won't have a root therapy appointment. And I said, well, we'll see, won't we? You know, I'll, I'll explore the options after you've done the presentation and we'll, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go from there. And then we were having some really good successes and patients were moving forward with root therapies when normally the tooth would have been extracted and we were just building his implant list and it was really supporting his implant cases. And lo and behold, in less than a year, Joe would not see any patient without a treatment coordination uh, appointment being in the mix. And sometimes, you know, as you say, change is quite scary, but when people can actually see it working and it sort of goes back to leadership as well doesn't it you know effective leadership is when people can see the results yeah and actually something's working in practice and you can start to provide evidence to dentists that the conversion rate has increased the average treatment plan value has increased the dna's for the um the practice have decreased the prepayment level is increased yeah, the diary zoning is um, as 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 is become so much better because the treatment coordinator is really concentrating on making sure the diary is working for the practice. Yeah, that actually all of those benefits start to the dentist soon click on that actually this is a major benefit for me. And the last benefit that I think is so important, and I know you'll agree with me on, is the GDC standards are so difficult now to present in terms of detailed communication with patients, understanding every available option, getting the notes right, making sure you've made a clear recommendation, making sure all of those alternatives and patients have had time to consider their options and effective follow-up has, um, has also taken place before patients knee-jerk into treatment, yeah, and maybe make a mistake because they didn't fully understand what they were going into. That's a lot of communication time. So the real benefit of having a treatment coordinator is they can do all that work for you. You're still in control of the full treatment plan and the guidance of it, but the treatment coordinators help you deliver the communication and give the patients the time that they need. And that's why it's a real win-win for practices. And that's when the role is something truly wonderful and why you and I are so passionate about it, you know, all of these years later, aren't we? And we love training it. Um, and, you know, we built our lives on doing this role, didn't we? That, you know, it's yeah. in the heart of what we do on a on a day by day basis. Yeah. 
absolutely that's what the core of the business is developing treatment coordination developing all the roles around it to make it really successful and yes it has so many positive effects for the business but ultimately this is about the patients and it's about the patient's experience their way they're communicated to mm. and i'd just like to stress it's not a sales role this is an education role this is a consent role this is about supporting dentists and supporting patients taking the pressure off the desk it's about giving patients time, giving them a private space uh, to talk to them. And the role also, which one of the most, another fantastic benefit is that it really does drive so many systems. It really does. So, you know, there's nothing better than having a systemized business and the role drives the systems. It's not the other way around. That's what you'll find constantly happening, that the role is just driving systems, more systems, new systems, tweaks on systems, mm. and life becomes much less stressful. But I really need to stress that, that this role is not an educational role. It's not, a, it's an edu sorry, it's not a sales role. It's an educational role. It's a consent role. And for me, uh, when we're working with new practices who contact us and they're looking to recruit a TCO, for me, my advice is they're GDC registered. I don't want someone doing the role who is from a corporate sales background. I'm sorry if anyone listening is, and you're probably doing a great job, but you know, to me, it's all about ethics and it's about supporting our dentists because that's another huge fear factor and a reason why dentists don't get on board with treatment coordination because they're worried about what that person says or does. So just to go back to that, the only way to deal with that is by to internally recruit like, this practice have because you know those team members you can trust in them and they know dentistry and they know what you're all about and then it's really successful for the long term which is the most important thing and it is about reassurance isn't it you know i we i definitely want to echo what you've said because that's so the right things to be saying and what i want to say as well is that providing the right solutions to patients and making them understand and almost switching the lights on so that they go, oh, I understand my options. Mm. Yeah? That's when patients make normally the choices based on the recommendation from the dentist. So the finance takes care of itself yeah. because as long as you're presenting the options correctly in an educational way and people understand what they're doing, then they are likely to move ahead with that. And that's what I found in practice. And I know we come from very different backgrounds now because I did a lot of uh, general dentistry and you, your practice was very high-end dentistry. So we've had, but it's the same, isn't it? Mm. You, know, you know, smile makeovers got massive risks associated that you had to go through from an educational point of view. Whereas mine was, you know, much more every day. And the treatment coordination work role works equally well between both of those sides of the equations. It's That's not right. about high-end dentistry all the time, and it's not about general dentistry all the time. It can work for, you know, all different parts. An options meeting is generally where treatment coordinators are being used to really support existing patients as well as new patients. So again, if that's a myth that you need to dispel. It's not all about the new patients. It's about the existing patients. And existing patients could have nothing more than going, oh, this is a new room. I've never been in here before. <laughs> if you make it salesy now, then this patient is never going to trust this practice again. Yeah. 
it's got to be education, education, education. And you can say, we've built this room so you can spend more time, you know, going through things, discussing things with you, making sure that you really understand, you know, the treatment options that you have available to you. And if you need to come back and, you know, we need to go back and forth for a few times for you to make your decision, then that's fine. And this room should be relaxing. It should be a great space to make a, a decision. That's what it's about, isn't it? Relaxing somebody to make a decision, not welcome to the sales room. And, you know, and if you have got a PDQ machine in there, which is something that would be on our list, don't have it sitting on the counter. <laughs> it's got to be away. Yeah. And if, uh, you know, you've got an opportunity to take a prepayment once the patient's made a decision, it's brought out afterwards, but it's discreet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I once had a patient, and I know we need to end the podcast here, but just I couldn't believe this when this happened. We had two consultation rooms, and this was a good thing to learn. And the patient, this patient had come into a different consultation room for their uh, treatment presentation. And um, I collected the patient, came in, we all sat down, patient, dentist, and I. And the patient went, What's this then? The closing room. And I was like, What? And he said, the closing room and I said what's the closing room he said, and he was a car salesman he said oh it's where we bring all the all the punters to close the deal we call it the closing room <laughs> I was like mortified and I was like absolutely no this is not a closing room and I said to him what makes you say that and he said well because last time I was in the other one and, I, and we straight away for us we were like wow we must make sure the patient always goes in the same room because he's immediately thinking that it's something else that's going to happen that day when actually we've got a huge number of options to discuss with you in the next half an hour. But it's interesting, isn't it? Patient's perception mm, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'll never forget that, the closing room. I was like, oh my gosh. Right, so anyway, we have to finish now. Thank you ever so much um, for joining us on our July 2019 podcast. We hope you all have a fabulous month. We know people are desperately looking forward to holidays over the next couple of months. We'll be back in August. And that's it from us today. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe so you can be notified of our next episode.